Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from FireEye's Kevin Mandia on the changing face of Russian cyber espionage. This week, our guest is the founder of an online lending startup, with its sights set on disrupting traditional banking. Until the financial industry migrates its focus from that 60-year-old boomer to that 35-year-old with student loan debt, we're going to have a a lot of room to to build a strong position in. That was the voice of Mike Cagney. He's the founder and chief executive of SoFi, the fintech company that specializes in student loan refinancing and mortgages. He spoke with Lex column writer Tom Braithwaite in San Francisco. So, Mike, um, sometimes we forget when our streets are crammed with Teslas and marijuana is filling the air that not everyone lives in San Francisco and so not everyone might have heard of SoFi. So could you tell our global audience where you came from? Sure. So SoFi is the largest non-bank consumer lender in the U.S. We originate about a billion dollars a month in loans across personal loans, student loan refinancing, mortgages. What's most unique about SoFi is the member that we focus on. We go after a market that's uh, affectionately called a Henry, which is an acronym for high earner, not rich yet. But these are folks that aren't served well through traditional financial services institutions. There's a lot of misperception around millennials that they're not good customers, they're not loyal, they price shop. But our experience has been the exact opposite. They're actually extremely engaged, they're extremely loyal. They value service and delivery more than they value price. But what you need to do is you need to give them speed, transparency, and alignment. And that's been core to our business model. And that's what's led to the success of the business thus far. So just take us back to the very beginning. You were at Stanford with some friends and you decided one day, let's do student lending. Right. So so the very beginning, I started my career at Wells Fargo. And when I was at Wells, I thought a lot about banking and the banking model. And in 2008, um, when I was running my hedge fund, one of my large investors came to me and said, the financial crisis is going to happen every 25 years. You're a smart guy. Figure out a different model. And so I looked at what was going on in the alternative finance universe, the fintech universe. And you know, at the end of the day, Chris Larson at Prosper had started a movement around peer-to-peer lending that I felt was very interesting and had potential. It was a non-bank structure. But but he was focused on a very different kind of customer. It was more of someone who was in the subprime market, credit card consolidation. And so I didn't spend a lot of time pursuing the idea. And in 2010, uh, I had an opportunity to go to Stanford to do a fellowship at the Graduate School of Business for a year. And I thought at the time I'd been staring at a Bloomberg screen almost my whole life and I wasn't getting any smarter watching the screen blink at me. So this gave me an opportunity to go and think about big picture financial services and, and how to do something that was truly transformative in financial services. And serendipitously, I met my co-founders at SoFi at the GSB, and we were thinking about how can we build a different kind of financial model that's more community-based? And we didn't have to look very far about a financial problem and a financial solution. So students at the graduate school business were paying 68 and 7.9% loan rates, despite the fact that none of them have ever defaulted. And, and to us, it seemed like a, a crazy situation. And, and sure, we'd be able to get alumni to invest in a fund, to lend the students at a lower rate, create a, a social contract, and, and really provide a foundation for a different, different lending model. And so 
that's how it started. Uh, it started with in-school lending at Stanford and then very quickly went to five other schools, then 20 to where we are today, which is we focus not so much on in-school lending, but on student loan refinancing, mortgages, personal loans across every school. So your Henry's, is this an infinite market? One of the things to remember about SoFi is while we focus on this 25 to 45 year old market, we have members who are as young as 19 and as old as 85. And what we're doing is we're constantly trying to bring more inclusivity into, into this market, expand the product offering, expand who we can help, who we can reach. But just within the Henry segment itself, there's 80 million 25 to 45 year olds in the US and, and we're looking at 20 million of them. Today we have 200,000 members. So there's a lot of opportunity for us to build into this. But the other thing about Henry's is it's not a, a US specific phenomenon. So there's Henry's in the UK, they're in Asia, they're in Europe. There's an enormous opportunity outside of the US and the pain point's the same. It's, it's a customer segment that's not getting the product and the service and the alignment from the existing financial institutions and, and is looking for something better. It's interesting you use the word inclusive because I think you've got a very exclusive connotation and you've reinforced that yourself with your Super Bowl ads where you have these people running around and, and the voiceover is identifying some of them as great and some of them saying, hey, that guy's not great. It feels very much like you're trying to create a, an aspirational brand which is which is not on offer to a lot of people. So I think there's a couple of dimensions to that. I, I think if you look at, you know, for example, what we've done in the mortgage market, we brought back the low down payment high LTV mortgage for first time home buyers. And that, that market would basically had frozen post crisis. If you look at, at our typical uh, Henry home buyer, it's someone with outstanding credit. They're going to live in the house. They're coming off student loan debt and they go to a, a traditional lender in, in San Francisco, for example, and they want to buy, you know, real estate's relatively expensive here. So let's say they want to buy a million dollar home in San Francisco. The lender's going to ask for 300000 down. And someone who's just coming out of student loan debt is not going to have $300,000 of, of cash, but they may have $100,000. And and to us, that's a customer that we want to be able to deliver a product into. And as we've gotten our conforming mortgage product in place with Fannie Mae, we've done some pretty innovative stuff where you can refinance your mortgage and, and roll your student loan debt into that and reduce your debt payments. And, and if you look at what we've done since we've started with the 200,000 members that we've had, you know, we've saved people hundreds of millions of dollars in interest payments by refinancing their loans. And, and, and in showing that the credit performs, we've been able to expand the, the number of people that we reach and, and make it more inclusive. And so what you're going to see as an evolution is, is SoFi promoting things like financial literacy and financial empowerment in ways that we can touch a broad number of people as possible. So how is it that you can do that mortgage and how is it that you were able to originally undercut this student loan rate? Why weren't the banks catering for that? So two great questions. We created student loan refinancing. It's a question mark as to why the banks hadn't created that product other than the fact that it goes back to my earlier point. Banks really don't think about this 35-year-old customer segment. Banks are very focused on a 60-year-old with lots of assets, not necessarily a 35-year-old with student loan debt. Now, what we've been able to do is rather than differentiate around price, we differentiate around brand and service. And so we're the number one student loan refinancing provider. Uh, number two is a bank. The rates are about 50 to 70 basis points lower than ours. But we beat them on volume month after month. We run multiples, probably four to five times as much monthly production as they do because of brand and service. And if you look at our mortgage business today, a third of the mortgages that we do are existing members. 
and that's not coming through an explicit cross-sell. I'm not allowed to use that word anymore because of Wells Fargo, but it's not coming from an explicit cross-sell effort. It's just they're coming back to SoFi. They're going to the website. They're applying for a mortgage that they've already been a, a student loan or a personal loan customer. And I think with with the mortgage product, you know, I, I remember when I went to a big bank, I won't say who, and I was talking about this product. I was talking to them about potentially buying loans from us. And you know, as you know, we we sell every loan that we originate, and so we have bank buyers, insurance companies, and asset managers, and, and they buy in security form and they buy in whole loan form. But I, I went and had a conversation with the the head of the mortgage group of this bank, and it was a you know it was, it was a t- typical conversation with a sixty year old managing director and a thirty five year old vice president in a room. And I said, you know, we have a very innovative product. It's a high loan to value product. It, it's getting people into homes earlier than, than the traditional financial community is getting them into. You can do it online. You can get your rate online. You go through the process online on your phone. And I remember the, the, the guy stopped me about 15 minutes into it and said, this is a ridiculous product. Nobody's going to want this. Nobody's going to buy it. You know, get out of my office. I can't believe I wasted 15 minutes of my life with you. And on the way to the elevator with the 35 year old was walking me out, as soon as we were out of earshot of the managing director, he said, I really need your loan. <laughs> and and it just it's an example of the financial industry not understanding the needs of this market, of this 35 year old. So this is not the, the problem loans that we had pre-crisis where it was your fifth house, you didn't live in it, you were flipping them, you were you know, lying about your income. This is a situation where you've got a super rock star, high credit borrower, living in the home. It's the only home they have. They're still putting a meaningful amount of dollars down for it. And and they're not having to deal with some of the nuances of mortgage insurance and so forth. And the rate's reflecting that. Rate reflects that it's a, a lower down payment so that the investor has that, that, that ability to get a commensurate return. And it's been a great product for us. Just talk about this, some of the outer limits of this superior service that apparently attracts people. I mean, you've said that you will get people jobs if they lose jobs and that you've managed to do that on occasions over 200 times you run sort of basically orgies as far as i can tell for your customers <laughs> uh we have networking events for our customers and they're very very well attended what, what why is it that your customers want to socialize with each other i have no interest in socializing with the people you know who's who, who bank at the same bank that i do well no absolutely and I, and I think that if wells fargo had a dating event i'm not sure anyone would come but when we have dating events they're oversubscribed we, we hold two to three networking events a week across the u.s they're always oversubscribed Sometimes they're topical. We talk about things like buying a home. Sometimes they're thematic around dating. Sometimes they're just happy hours and ways for people to connect. And we've had about 10% of our member base, so about 20,000 people go to offline events. And no one's seen anything like this in financial services. And, and, and the, the reality is, again, it just comes to the understanding of the member or the misunderstanding of a financial services firm of this member, that these are people who want to network, they want to talk, they, they want to share information, they want to meet one another. And because it, it is somewhat of a curated community in the sense that not everyone can be a SoFi member, you need to have good credit and really you need to have decent credit and make more money than you spend. Um, and that's that, those are the two biggest criteria. But, but because there's some aspirational aspect of this, people do want to meet one another, they do want to engage, they do want to connect. And, and so... When you think about scalability and, and how can we keep doing this, what's happened is the community's begun to take care of itself. And so, for example, if you lose your job, you can reach out to the community and say, I want to do an informational interview at Google and you'll get it in a day. Uh, I mean, it's that deep and, and that, that broad. 
And by the way, when you get your job offer from Google, we can then show you what all the salaries are of people at Google because we have all that information too. And so there's there's a lot of synergy that comes, a network effect that comes from when you get a critical mass within the community. I think we're definitely there. But inevitably, that is going to feel it's going to feel a less special club as you get bigger and people are going to be less willing to go out on the limb to you know help other members. Yeah, I, I think if anything, we've seen the opposite. We've seen we've seen the member events actually increase in momentum. And and what we have to do is just stay ahead of doing things that are topical that people want. You know, what we found is is we're getting more and more momentum. And, and as we add members, there's places that historically we didn't have critical mass. It didn't make sense to have member events that now we can. Uh, so, you know, for example, we're having our first member event in uh, in New Mexico uh, in the coming uh, couple of weeks. And and historically, we just never had enough people in New Mexico to get them to an event. And, and now we've got a, a nice oversubscribed function happening in New Mexico. So, okay, so you're still cool. The the sector you inhabit, though, for, at least from an investor point of view, is less cool than it was when we first met a couple of years ago. We've seen the implosion of Lending Club, Prosper has struggled. FinTech is no longer the, the sexy area. So what does that mean for you? Yeah, I, I think that there were a couple of different ways that our business could have been impacted by what happened with Lending Club in the, the spring of 2016. I think we had a lot of concern about the capital markets, how the capital markets were going to react to that. And, and fortunately, the capital markets were extremely robust. We did a, a transaction two weeks after the Lending Club uh, announcement with the, the CEO change. And it was three and a half times oversubscribed and executed at a level beyond our expectations. So these are- Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Your loans that you've securitized and you're trying to sell to investors. That's right. That's right. So we didn't see any issue in terms of appetite for our credit. What what we have seen, certainly in the equity market, is is valuation pressure. That London Club is not worth eight billion anymore; they're worth two and a half billion or three billion, and and so you know, we have to navigate that in the market. Obviously, you know, I think it's it's publicized. We're out raising capital right now, and and that's a consideration that people have. So we would have a higher valuation if they were still worth eight billion, but but they're not, and so that's just the reality. So you came in with raising a lot of money a year or two ago. SoftBank was a a big investor. So do you feel this pressure that this is sort of a weird Silicon Valley phenomenon to me since I've been here that you can't raise money at a lower value, you can't have a down round? Do you do you always have to be worth more each step along the way? Well, I, I think in our situation, it's a little bit unique because we're profitable. And so we actually don't have to raise money. And, and so the only reason that we would raise money is if we felt we were getting a, a meaningful accretion to the, to the prior value. I think that the challenge that a lot of folks have in the Valley is, is they do deals with a lot of structure in them. And the structure is extremely punitive if you do a down round. We don't have any structure in our deals, so we're not in the same situation. But, but fortunately, you know, despite the company being five years old, we're, we're extremely profitable. Um, there's no need on capital. And so when we raise, it's opportunistic for something that we want to do. 
and that might be geographic expansion or? Ge geographic expansion product expansion one of the things that we're, we're very focused on is rounding out the product set so today we have a strong footprint in credit and what we'd like is a footprint on what we call the other side of the balance sheet so around transactional banking products around asset management wealth management around insurance and this ties into an overall strategy we have around financial wellness, financial literacy, financial empowerment, uh, which roots back to our corporate channel. So we launched SoFi at Work this year, basically provides the administration function for allowing a company to pay down its employees' student loans. We'd like to, to expand that offering to do things around uh, mortgages and, and insurance products and wealth management products, and as I said, financial literacy and financial empowerment, where a company can basically know that their employees are being taken care of. So that's that's a big initiative for us over the course of this year is to expand that product set out. And, and it'll take capital to invest to do that. Are you using the capital that you raise to make loans? So the billion four that, that we've raised is, is what's on the balance sheet today in terms of equity. And it basically is providing the equity within our warehouse financing. So we have about four and a half billion of warehouse borrowing uh, or capability. We don't actually use four and a half billion at, at any given point in time. So taken together, it's about $6 billion on the balance sheet that we can lend out. And we use the balance sheet like an accordion. So if we don't like the market, we don't like the prices in the market, we can expand the balance sheet and continue to originate loans until we get to a point where we do like it and then sell those loans. We still ultimately sell everything we originate, but because of the size of the balance sheet that we have, we're not in a situation where we have to sell at any point in time. And you've not seen any slowdown, any reduction in demand from investors? No, what we've done is, is we made a concerted effort this year to go to Europe, go to Asia, broaden the investor base. So we have about 100 accounts that we talked to today on a deal. And the recent transactions we've done, usually 20 to 30 participate, and they've run between five and seven times oversubscribed. And so not only have we not seen a, a slowdown, we've, we've actually seen acceleration of interest to the point where it's difficult for us to even get enough paper into investors. You know, an insurance company will come in and want to take 100 million and we, we, we allocate them 12. Now, I'll knock on wood on that because these situations can ebb and flow with the markets. But, but right now, there's been no lack of demand at all for the paper. So at some point, you're going to do a, an IPO. Yep. And when's that? I don't know when it is in terms of the timeline, but I can tell you where the business will be to do it, which is today, we're still too nascent of a business. So we're, while we're profitable, we certainly have the revenue and the metrics to support a public offering we're still too early in the business cycle and that you know the quarters will will ebb and flow as, as business situations warrant we'll make decisions that that cover 12 or 18 month time horizons as opposed to quarterly time horizons because they're good for the accretion and value creation of the business we need to get a little more mature on the core lending business we need to take some of the nascent businesses that the asset management wealth management banking insurance and get those to a point where they provide a clear, visible contribution to our revenue and to our margin. And, and then it will make sense to go public. Where, where else do the pressures come from? Do the pressures come from employees at some point? So that's what I hear quite often. You're a younger company than, than some who are still private. So what we've done is in every round of financing, we've been fortunate to have the round significantly oversubscribed. And so we've done a secondary offering in each of the rounds of financing that we've done. 
And so people have been able to sell stock along the way. And so by, by giving people access to liquidity, there's no pressure in terms of the timing of a public event. And we, we, we treat everyone the same way. So investors, employees, everyone has had access to the secondaries. And to the extent that people have wanted to sell, they've been able to do it. And if you look at our investor base, you know, SoftBank, for example, I mean, uh, Masa has talked publicly about his 300-year plan. He obviously has a relatively long time horizon. Now, that doesn't mean that they they don't care about what happens quarter to quarter. They're you know very very rigorous investors, and and they watch the business very closely. But the capital that's in the business is a little atypical in that it's not one, two, three-year time horizon venture or private equity money. It's really long-term capital. Okay, so the investors aren't pushing for an IPO. No. Bank shares are up since the election quite a lot. Is there a risk that they could? have the pressure taken off them to the extent that they're more of a competitor to you? First off, if you look at the competitive landscape today, our, our competition is definitely banks. And you know whether it's the big banks like the Wells's and Chase's of the world, or, or it's some of the more regionals like a First Republic, those are who we're competing with in terms of customer acquisition, in terms of service and delivery. So they're already there. It's not that they're not there. And I think the things that we've done where we've really differentiated around brand, around product, around service, uh, all these crazy networking events we talked about earlier that, that actually translate to lower acquisition costs and member retention, these are things that are very difficult for banks to adopt. And so they might be able to improve some of their cost structure by reducing the amount that they spend on regulation and compliance. And, and I think the re-rating of the bank shares is reflecting some of this. But I don't think at, at the core of, of why we've been successful in the market, it's not been a regulatory arbitrage. It's not been a compliance arbitrage. It's really just been understanding this customer and understanding how to deliver a valuable product and service to them. And, and I think until the financial industry migrates its focus from that 60-year-old boomer to that 35-year-old with student loan debt, we're going to have a, a lot of room to, to, to build a strong position in. So the banks can fund themselves for you know very cheaply because they benefit from government insurance on their deposits. Yep. I will put $100 in without worrying about it and don't expect much in return. Does that become more valuable when rates are higher? Is, is, is there a risk that you're, you know, the, the way you compete without having that benefit is, is more challenged? Yeah, it's it's not so much whether it becomes more valuable as rates become higher or not per se, but but I think the way that we look at it, when we started, banks had a clear cost of funds advantage to us, right? If you looked at where we were executing the securitization market versus what true cost of funds to the bank was, because you have to take into consideration not just the deposits, but the equity they have to hold to the balance sheet and tier one, tier two capital they have to hold all in if you looked at it, we were at a significant disadvantage, which was part of the strategic decision not to compete on price. What's happened over time is as we've opened up the capital markets, as we've increased the buyer base, as we've gotten AAA on our securitizations, our cost of capital today is not dissimilar to where bank cost of capital is. So I think we've effectively eliminated or nearly eliminated the, the, the cost of funds advantage that traditional financial players have had. And, and still, we're emphasizing brand and service as a differentiator aspect for the business. And under a higher rate environment, the, the challenge there you do better on the capital market side because you're delivering a higher coupon product. And, and so many buyers in capital markets are absolute yield buyers, not spread buyers. But you introduce some challenges on the customer acquisition side because the cost of, the cost of loan is higher, the cost of service debt is higher. And so we, we kind of look at the, the environment that we have not so much as improving the ability for banks to compete from any, any funding advantage, but really 
shifting some of the challenges that we have from finding enough capital for the loans to getting the right loans through the door with a higher rate. Okay. And are some of your loans ending up with the banks? You mentioned insurers, where the banks buying them too? Yeah, we, we sell billions of dollars of loans to banks. And have you had to become more friendly to them as a result? I think despite what the press said, we, we were always friendly with banks. Uh, I don't think we ever were particularly unfriendly. So let me read you this quote. They're the dinosaurs and I'm the meteor. Who said that? I, I, certainly that said, I, I certainly said that, but that was almost, what, a year and a half ago that yes, I said there that. There you go. You've changed. And, and, and yeah, I, I think that at the time there was a purpose behind that, which was really building independence and, and identifying around a brand that could deliver a different kind of service model. And I still believe that. I still believe that, that the single greatest innovation that we've done within financial services is how we deliver product to our member base. And, and I think that the way that the banks do it is antiquated. But I think that they'll learn and they'll figure it out and they'll change. And, and I think it's an enormous ecosystem. Uh, it's not a winner take all. And so just as we have four mega banks today that all compete with one another, we see ourselves as competing in that group. And we've been doubling the business every year. Um, we'll double it again next year and get to the point where, you know, we'll be one of the largest consumer lenders in the country, unsecured consumer lenders in the country. And, and hopefully on the mortgage side, we'll get there in the next 12 months as well. There's enough room for us to all compete. There's reasons that there's synergy between our businesses. So we have banks that are phenomenal capital market partners for us or phenomenal loan buyers. There's things that we try to do in addition to delivering high quality assets to, to show them how we're using technology, how we're doing marketing, how we're building brand. And, and there's, enough, there's enough out there for us all to coexist. Okay. When are we going to see you in other countries? In 2017. Okay. And the UK, top of that? The uh, UK is one of our high priorities, but, but Australia will be the first place we go. How useful is Peter Thiel as an investor to you? I think the folks at Teal have been great. I think that you know they've helped with introductions. They've helped uh, as we've thought about the business, and and so you know we're very fortunate to have the relationship. Do you now have the inside track on the Trump administration? We have not even broached that subject. Is he going to tweet nice things about you when you IPO? Uh, I I would have no idea. I, I hopefully because we save Americans money, so that's a good thing. All right, I think we will leave it there. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week, when you can hear from Jennifer Granick, Director of Civil Liberties at Stanford Law School Center for Internet and Society, on living in a modern surveillance state. She'll be talking with Hannah Kushler, the FT San Francisco correspondent. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.